This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That Absolutely honoured to be joined on Football CF to be today by a true legend of football, a true Arsenal legend, Alan Smith. Just before we start the interview, I want to also mention Alan's excellent book, Heads Up, My Life Story, available in all good bookstores and on Amazon as well. If you've not had the chance to read it yet, then I strongly urge you to do so. It's an excellent book written by Alan, Alan himself. First of all, Alan, how are you? Yeah, I'm good, Callum. Thanks for the plug. That's very kind of you. As I say, I really, I really do enjoy good books, and, and Heads Up certainly is one of them for me. And one of the first things I want to to talk to you about, Alan, is something that's quite topical, and it's the pyramid system in football. You started in, in non-league football. What are your memories of playing non-league? Uh, I think the essence of of fun, first of all. Obviously, the lads took it seriously come match day, but there was always that underlying attitude that you know this is a game of football we're here to enjoy ourselves whether that was match day or or training there were some great characters in non-league and there certainly were at Alf Church and uh, I, I learned an awful lot uh, an awful lot because it was my first kind of experience of, of senior football and it's a lot different to having played for your school your county and what have you in, in, in junior football so um you know, you have to grow up quickly, but I had a, we had a great time. I mean, I was I was the the, the boy of the group, really, the kid coming through, um, and I think I think the boys looked after me. But um, it, it was a wonderful experience. I only played for Alf Church for a year in the Southern League Midland Division, which was a good standard back then, a good standard. A lot of ex-pros uh, in the latter stages of their careers, had, you know, were playing at that level. Um, and yeah, it, it, it was it was a fantastic season for me. I, I really enjoyed it. I never forget it. You, you mentioned the fact you won't forget it. It leads on to you turning pro and, and moving to Leicester. What was that like for you going from non-league to a club the size of Leicester? Well, I mean, it was a dream come true because, like most kids, uh, I'd always wanted to be a footballer. But I took the longer route. Uh, I stayed on at school. I went to a grammar school, a boys' school, and I, I always enjoyed my studies. Uh, stayed on to do my A levels, and then uh, I was looking at a university. Uh, and in the end, I didn't quite get the grades good enough. For, I went to, for an interview at Manchester, uh, Kent University as well. In the end, I went to Coventry Poly um, and to study modern languages. Um, so after a year, that was when Leicester came in for me whilst I was a student. Um, I wasn't really enjoying the, the degree course too much. Um, I wasn't particularly happy living in digs in Coventry. So, I mean, anyway, uh, for, for a professional club like Leicester, to, they offered me a four-year contract. It was a no-brainer for me. Uh, it's not really a gamble when they're offering you a four-year contract. You've got a great crack at it. So, yeah, I couldn't wait to sign 
couldn't wait to sign. And uh, all of a sudden, you're playing with the pros. You're training every day of the week. And that's something that hits you, really. The, the physical aspect of it, having just trained uh, two evenings a week with Alf Church. But uh, the standard goes up quite a few notches. And you, you have to raise your game along with that. And you, you improve quickly, I think, if you've got the ability to do that. You improve quickly. You learn a lot quickly. Um, and yeah, it was where it was where I wanted to be. It was a fantastic first club to join. Um, Jock Wallace signed me. He was a tough Glaswegian, but he left shortly after signing me. And obviously, at that point, I was I was a bit worried for my future because the manager, he's the one that's got faith in you, and then all of a sudden he's left. But as it turned out, it was the best thing that could have happened. Uh, Gordon Mill came across from Coventry, actually. And um, he cleared out the dressing room of uh, so many of the Scots that had gathered there under Jock. And he gave me my chance on the first day of the season. Uh, I scored a hat-trick in a, in a first-team friendly against Northampton at uh, Beaver Drive, the Leicester training ground, uh, in pre-season, up, up front with Gary Lineker. And... Um, I didn't really look back from that point on. Gary and I formed a really good partnership. Absolutely. You definitely dovetailed very nicely together. And and a lot of the, the younger listeners to this will see Gary Lineker, of course, as being a presenter on, on lots of the programming um, that he's on, whether that be football or sports personality. But what was he like as a player? Because when you look at his record, goals were seemed to be guaranteed. And when both of you played together, goals galore and, and promotions as well. Yeah, I mean, Gary had only been on the scene a, a year or so, a uh, season or so. He was the local boy, the golden boy in many ways. Local Leicester lad from a, a family who had a market stall, uh, fruit and veg at Leicester Market. Um, so yeah, a lot of hope was pinned on his on his shoulders. And, you know, that hope wasn't misplaced uh, Sometimes I think with, with players, you have to work hard to form a partnership, but it, it did click quite easily, quite naturally with Gary and I and uh, him being somebody that loves to hang on shoulders and me being a back-to-goal a back to goal type target man, flicking things on, linking with him. Uh, so they were, they were happy days. We played together for three years uh, before Gary went off to join Everton. Um, and that's where I made my reputation, certainly. Uh, and, and yeah, and Gary certainly did as, as well. So uh, it was it was a brilliant grounding for us both. You mentioned that grounding again. Younger um, listeners will be thinking about the KP Stadium and and, and how modern uh, football is now. But but you were playing at the old Filbert Street, which was a, a, an iconic football ground in itself. Yes, it was. It wasn't the most palatial ground in the world, uh, the most luxurious. The far stand opposite the tunnel was the cow shed. It was just quite a small stand. Uh, you had the double-decker stand across to your right behind the goal. And then at the other end, another small stand with little executive boxes, which you could easily hit the glass window of if you just hit it over the bar. Um, but it, it was a great ground, you know, when it was full. Although, it's funny, in writing my book, um, you'd look back at those days in the, in the early 80s and look at the attendances, and it was rarely full, Filbert Street. Uh, even though we were in the top flight, we got uh, promotion after my first year, so 12 months after being a student, I'm in the top flight, the old first division, so that, that was an amazing thing in itself. But, yeah, you, you forget 
back then that football wasn't such a, a fashionable sport, wasn't so appealing to families. There was hooliganism. Uh, the grounds weren't very nice, quite a lot of them. You know, the toilets were in the right state. Uh, it was very much a, a man's game in terms of the supporters that came. Um, but uh, we had some great, we had some great tussles there at Filbert Street. Um, we we let in a few goals and we score a few goals. I think we were quite entertaining to watch. But uh, it was a sad day when they knocked it down. But of course, the KP, uh, the King Power Stadium, yeah, it's a brilliant arena, and you take it for granted now that every home game for Leicester, it, it's a sellout. And in terms of moving from the second division to the first. How did you feel at that period? Was there any nerves in your part thinking, wow, this is a massive step up for me very quickly? Yes, I did. Um, the first few games were difficult. I didn't score. Gordon Mill dropped me, I think. Uh, at that point, you're wondering whether you are going to be able to compete at that level. Um, we lost our first game 4-0 to Notts County. Um they weren't, I think they'd been, you know, flapping about in the lower regions of the division. Martin O'Neill played, I remember that. Uh, I think John Fashionew did as well. Uh, sorry, Justin Fashionew. Um, big Brian Killer Kill Klein. He was a fearsome centre half with a big beard uh, who didn't take any prisoners. Uh, so, yeah, it was tough. Um, but thankfully, I learned fairly quickly and you get your first goal. And all of a sudden, you gain a bit more confidence and um, you're off and running. You, you mentioned uh, getting off and running. You certainly managed to get off to a flyer. You, you get 15 goals in the league in your first season in the first division. And that continues on throughout your, your four seasons with Leicester in that division. When did you first hear of interest in yourself and how did you react to that at, at the time when it came in? Yeah, it, it was a gradual thing as, as you were making your way in the game, scoring goals, getting good reports, uh, you know, making a little bit of a splash in the press. So obviously people started looking and I heard of Arsenal's interest more and more. There was a lad called Tony Seeley played for us and he knew George Graham from their time together at QPR when George was a coach. Um, and George would get in contact with Tony and... Uh, see if I fancied it so he'd whisper out the corner of his mouth in in the dressing room before training whether I, whether I fancied it these things obviously go on all the time um and I and I was more than keen you know I'd seen Gary go and, and I was ambitious I wanted to I wanted to get on in the game and uh, for a club like Arsenal to be interested in you it was fantastic yeah. world famous club I'd played there for Arsenal uh, so for Leicester I'd obviously watched them down the years as a boy, um, seeing them get to those FA Cup finals. Um, and um, I was more than keen. Yeah, more than keen. It lasted quite a long time. And in the end, uh, it was transfer deadline day, funnily enough, the day that we're speaking here today, uh, that I signed for them, which was always the third Thursday of March. Uh, obviously, then they didn't have transfer windows. You could make your transfers uh, right through the season up until that third Thursday. I wonder whether Arsenal delayed it just to, as a negotiating tactic to try and get the best deal. But um, I went down to Arsenal. We played QPR on the Wednesday, I think. it Well, yeah, the Wednesday night. And Ken Fry, the managing director of Arsenal, came to watch the game and then took me down afterwards. And I stopped at his house. And uh, the morning after, we talked terms in his, in his living room. And 
went off to Highbury afterwards, uh, more more of a chat, and then I, then I signed on the dotted line. So I never forget getting shown around Highbury, the marble halls, and you know that the, the, the dressing rooms, the underfloor heating, all these things that you heard about, and most importantly, the the, the pitch, the North Bank, the Clock End, um, the North and sorry, the East and West stands, those listed uh, buildings, just had a magical feeling about it. And uh, Burton Shaw, who was the chief scout at the time, he he took me out onto the pitch and and uh, he put the fear of God into me, really, because he said, Alan, a lot of people have come here as a number nine, but I can tell you not many have succeeded. It, it's a difficult job. And I thought, oh, crikey, you know, how's this one going to turn out? But um, thankfully, it turned out pretty good. <laughs> it did turn out very well. And, and before we come to the real highlights and the successes, what was George Graham like as a manager? Because when you look back at that era, there was the obviously there's the classic one nil to the Arsenal, but he, he was a manager who, from the outside looking in, he seemed to be fierce and would tell you exactly what he wanted from, from you, regardless of your position. Yeah, he was a tough manager, uh, disciplinarian. He wasn't there, actually, when I signed. He was off with the team on a mid-season trip to Portugal. But um, he... Uh, he always used to say, once I've seen your best, whether it's in training or on a match day, I want to see that, you know, nine times out of ten. Uh, he demanded high standards. Um, uh, and that was great because we were successful. So uh, there weren't too many times that he was unhappy and really pointing the finger. That Obviously, that did happen on occasions. But um, he, he was a good manager. Tactically, he was excellent as well. Something maybe he doesn't get the credit for, where he adjusted his his formations in Europe, um, which eventually brought us success. Um, he was a striker as a player, uh, but he obviously put a lot of accent on, on the back four, which he would work on incessantly. And it'd be me and Paul Merson, Brian Marwood, David Rowcastle trying to break down this back four in training. And they had such an understanding due to you know, all the practice that they went through. But uh, that's how they became the, the fearsome uh, unit that they did. Um, but it, I was lucky, really. I joined at a, a great time. They're on the cusp of a really successful era. Uh, those young lads were coming through the youth system. Tony Adams, Rocky, Michael Thomas, um, Paul Merson, who was a fantastic strike partner for me. Um, and... Uh, Added to that, obviously, George bought well with, with, with Steve Bold, Lee Dixon, Brian Marwood, these lads alongside me as well, all plucked from uh, the old second division, you know, the second tier. Um, and, and, and he brought, he, he built a team that, that could look after itself, that, that could scrap if a scrap was needed and could also play football. Um, I mean, you mentioned 1-0 to the Arsenal, but that only really came in in that Cup Winners' Cup run in the, in the mid-90s, in, in 93, 94. Before that, we were quite free-scoring. I think we were top scorers in, in uh, the 91 title-winning season. I think Liverpool... No, I think, actually, we beat Liverpool in 89 as well in terms of goals. But, um, obviously, the football was different then to what it is now. Uh, George would like the fullback to hit me early, whether it was Lee or Nigel Winterburn on the other side. I would show for it, and we'd build from there. But we had some skillful players. You know, I mentioned Rocky, and Anders Limpar came in two years later. He was a wonderful technician. Um, Michael Thomas, the like. Uh, 
we, we had some really good players um, and, and that's why we were successful. And in, in terms of the success, everyone talks about the game in, in, in 89 and, and you can understand why when you think about the iconic moments in the Premier League. Your colleague Martin Tyler gets asked a lot about the Aguero moment, but and that is a very iconic, but when you think back to the 89 season in the game between yourselves and Liverpool, going into that game with, base, with the title on the line, you, you can't get higher stakes than that. How did George prepare the team before that game? Because I imagine it would have been quite easy to, to feel the pressure and, and the weight of expectation. Yeah, I think the pressure was taken off us a little bit because we'd, we'd messed up our last two home games against Derby, where we lost, and against Wimbledon, where we drew 2-2. And we thought we'd, we'd messed it up. The wheels had come off. Um, I remember clapping the pipe against after that Wimbledon game, and it was, a, it was an attitude of, well, we've done our best. Sorry about that. Hopefully we do better next year. But because of that, nobody fancied us, particularly the media. Um, and this was all in the wake of Hillsborough as well, which was a huge uh, dark shadow cast over not just football, but the entire country. Um, so we, we'd had that break uh, and then got back to business. Um, but yeah, those last two home games, nerves maybe got the better of us. So we went up to Anfield with that kind of feeling of what have we got to lose? Um, we'll just give it a go, see, see where it takes us. And George had that attitude, but he was also very positive. Um, he, he was convinced we could win. We could get two or probably three goals. Um, but unusually, he played a back five, which, looking back, when you, you need to win 2-0, uh, would seem strange. But he thought that was the best way to combat them, with uh, Lee pushing on to John Barnes and Nigel pushing on to Ray Houghton, who he saw as their two kind of big threats, really, uh, the, t the, the players that got them going. And it did work really well. And uh, we, we stormed out the blocks. I mean, it was a, it was a frenetic game. The, the ball was never still for a second. There was hardly any football played right through. <laughs> um, on the night, you know, we showed a great athletic ability. And, and in the end, we, I think we overran Liverpool, um, who were, I think, affected by the whole situation. They'd been attending funerals left, right and centre. So psychologically, it must have had a, a profound effect. But... It's easy to forget what a magnificent team they were. This is the Liverpool side that right through the 70s and, and the 80s had dominated English football. They'd won the European Cup four times. They just set the standards. And when they got the ball, you had to wait 10 minutes to get it back off them. That, they were so good, that, that short, sharp passing and movement. Um, but I, I used to love playing at Anfield. I had a good record there for Leicester. Leicester were their bogey team for a lot of years. And we got some good results up there. The pitch was always great. So I think we knew, you know, in that first half, although we came off at halftime a little bit down because we hadn't created any chances of no, um, we kept the clean sheet, which was what George was most concerned about because he thought, well, if they score, we've got no chance. We've got to get three. Uh, so he encouraged us at halftime and then encouraged us to push on a bit more. And he, he was confident we'd get that first goal. And, and, and we did, obviously, through my, uh, my header from the free kick. Um, and then, of course, the rest is history, as they say, with, with Mickey's goal right at the death. Um, the cop had been whistling for the full-time whistle for oh, a long time and no clock in the stadium. We just had to rely on our bench signalling how long was left and you're never quite sure. 
the ref, I think, had said to Lee Dixon when Lee asked how long left, and he went, ah, it's done, Lee, it's done. And then the ball was rolled back to, to, to uh, John Lukic, our keeper, who threw it out to Lee, who, who hit it up that channel to me. As I mentioned, that's, that's something that came naturally. It was automatic. And, and I decided I had to take a first touch on the turn, and it would have been a difficult touch because it was fizzed into me, but thankfully my touch came off, and then I saw this yellow blur in my peripheral vision, and it was Mickey Thomas making yet another run and just tried to find him, and it thankfully dropped in his path, and he got that little bit of luck with the deflection. He's still on goal, and he did seem to go into slow motion then, as you could see the red shirts converging on him and Mickey taking his time as he always did. He was <laughs> such a back-back character. He'd never do anything in a rush or when he didn't want to do it. And he just waited for Bruce Grobelar to make his move and, and, and dinked it over his body. So it was a magical moment that, um, that beyond compare, you know, people obviously do talk about Man City and Aguero, but that was against the QPR team struggling against relegation and down to 10 men and City were at home um, with the millions that they, the billions they'd spent. So totally different situations and challenges. Um, and, and I think we all, we sat back in the dressing room afterwards, sipping our champagne. And one of the lads said, I think, listen, we might as well pack up now. We might as well retire now because it's never got any going to get any better than this. And it never did. It never did. Uh, I think we all feel fortunate to to have been there that night. As well as winning that, that the title that season in dramatic fashion, you also won the Golden Boot. As a striker, how much pleasure did that give you as well? Well, I never thought I'd win or be in with a shout of it, I must say. Uh, I'll never forget first day of the season at Wimbledon away. I got a hat-trick, um, which was obviously a great start, but the press, the, the newspaper lads were waiting outside the dressing room in this pokey old corridor and saying, Alan, Alan, you know, you must fancy yourself with a golden boot this year. They, they were trying to get a headline. And in my typical fashion, I said, oh, no, no, don't put your money on me. I'm not that type of player. And Tony Cotty had got a hat-trick that day. And I said, look, Tony Cotty for Everton, he's more likely to get it because um, he was that kind of poacher. Um, so when it did happen, yeah, I mean... I was delighted. Obviously, I, I thought there was a great chance of it happening. John Aldridge was the closest to me, obviously, on the opposite side, side on the 26th of May. And um, Adidas wanted to do a little presentation on the pitch, a PR thing for Adidas, and this is the big shootout. Who's going to win the Golden Boot? And John changed his mind two or three times. Yes, he did want to do it. No, he didn't. Yes, he did. No, he didn't. Um, uh, maybe, you know, that was a... A reflection of the nerves in the Liverpool dressing room. I don't know, but yeah, um, to get to get the golden boot and to you know to score a goal. Uh, more importantly, I think it, it's the biggest game of all of our lives, and so for me to play well and score that goal, a vital goal, that that was even more satisfying. When you look at footballers in their career, winning the title in '89 and getting the golden boot. A lot of people would say you can't top that. I know you've said maybe feeling-wise you can't top that. But in terms of the achievements that you had, you then go and win the title again in 91 and have another golden boot. So how did that compare to the to the first time you'd done it? Um, well, yeah, I mean, to do it again, it, it, it's wonderful because, you know, flashing the pan then, are you? And uh, to have won the title again as a team, that that's fantastic. Um 
it was a bit less dramatic, as you say. We won the title with a couple of games to spare. Uh, we were probably the more complete outfit compared to 89. We'd made some signings. David Seaman, as good as John Lukic was. Dave was, you know, a notch or two above. He was a fantastic goalkeeper. And as Limpar had come in, it was such a clever player and we had a great relationship. Like Brian Marwood in 88-89, he set up a lot of my goals. Um, and we, of course, we had that know-how. Uh, we'd been through a title-winning campaign before. We knew all about it. Uh, we knew the pressures that you face along the way. Um, and we coped, you know, really well, only losing the one game at Chelsea away, uh, which is, a, looking back, it's a big disappointment. We could have been the first Invincibles, but... Uh, it was it was great, yeah. Um, to to I got my I got a hat trick against Manchester United the night that we'd been crowned as champions before kick off. Um, so that just kicked me forward towards clinching the golden boot. I scored. Um, Lee Dixon gave me uh, the penalty for my third. He normally took them and never missed, but uh, he was good enough to let me have that penalty because he knew I was after the golden boot. And yeah, brilliant night all round. Absolutely fantastic, and uh, to win the title again, yeah. I, I remember the papers saying Arsenal to dominate for the next ten years, and you always think that at the time we, we were in such a strong position, and why why wouldn't we go on and dominate? And and we think that we thought that about Man City, and we think that about Liverpool, but now it's not always guaranteed, and uh, you never quite know how things are going to turn out. Unfortunately. We stopped becoming a title-chasing team and became more of a cup team, winning the League Cup, the FA Cup, and then the European Cup Winners' Cup, which, which isn't bad in itself. But there was a there was disappointment there, certainly from me, and I know from a lot of my teammates who'd won the league that we were no longer challenging for that. And in terms of the cup successes that you mentioned there, the FA Cup in particular, what was that like to win, to win that for yourself, considering that... Obviously, live football is, is commonplace now, but but for you growing up, I imagine the FA Cup was really the showpiece event. So for you, was that extra special to win? It, it was the day that you dream of, as you say, growing up, sitting in front of the telly for about seven or eight hours, watching all the build-up and everything on a Saturday. Uh, in the end, it was a bit of an anticlimax in many ways because... Well, first of all, I didn't get picked for the FA Cup final on the Saturday. This was when I was struggling for form. I was in and out of the side. Kevin Campbell got the nod to partner me and Wright. And I, I was on the bench and I came on for the last half an hour, whatever it was. And um, But thankfully, George Graham saw sense for the replay and uh, picked me. And it was a, it was a wet Thursday night. Um, and I'm, uh, there haven't been many FA Cup replays, but you always imagine lifting the cup on a on a sunny Saturday at Wembley. Uh, but as it was, it was uh, it was a miserable, soaking wet Thursday night. But the, the, the main thing was that we did beat Sheffield Wednesday um, with an Andy Linnigan header late on, towards the 90th minute. Um, I uh, I set up Righty for his first, which which was nice. Uh, I was kicking myself though because I could have scored. Tried to dink it over Chris Woods, their keeper, in the second half, and that would have tied it up. But I missed it. Uh, but we, but we lifted the cup at the end, and uh, and what a medal to have, you know, on the sideboard. Um, one of the famous medals in world football, 
and 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 in that bath afterwards, the old cliche, you're filling the cup up with champagne and having a good laugh and a sing song, memories that you know can't can't be matched. You mentioned Ian Wright there. Just what was he like to play with? Because I imagine in terms of characters, I imagine you both to be quite different, but both incredible goal scorers. Yeah, well, Wright, he was a one-off. He he was so unpredictable to read uh, as to where he was going to run on the pitch. And I think defenders, that's why they found it difficult to, to pin him down. But it was hard because of that to, to form a, a proper partnership in the way that I had with Gary Lineker and I had with Paul Merson, actually. Um, and George Graham tried to kind of bring him into the team shape that we knew so well, but he soon realised that that wasn't going to happen. Um, and he acted, Wrighty was a free spirit. He was the best finisher I ever played with, even better than Gary. Uh, he was just a natural and uh, you just had to let him loose. So it was a matter of playing around him more than anything. Um, but they, they, they were tough times for me because I wasn't scoring anywhere near the amount of goals that I, I was before that I had right through my career. So I had a miserable few years, to be honest with you. Um, stuff that the public really don't see behind the scenes. But I just had to keep going and try and stay useful to the team by, you know, uh, being a good foil, setting up goals, leading the line. Which I, which I just about managed to do. And that, and that saw me through to the Cup Winners' Cup final, which was another highlight, obviously. It certainly is, the, the Cup Winners' Cup against Parma. And, and you talk about that the, the life of a striker and the fact that lots of people analyse strikers' own goals. It's the obvious way to, I suppose, to measure a striker's success. You, you, you mentioned there that when you're not scoring, you've got to, in a sense, maybe change your mindset and, and think, what can I do for the team, even if it's not working for myself? How challenging can that be? Yeah, it's difficult. It's difficult because you, you've been so used to being the main man, scoring the goals, um, getting on the end of things. Um, we played in a slightly different way. We very much wanted to hit Ian early and he, he was over the top and away and more often than not scoring. So you can't argue with that. But um, yeah, you had to dig in, grit your teeth a little bit and it doesn't become as enjoyable anymore because you're not getting that end result of a goal, that thrill. But um, just trying to do your best for the team. And as I say, we were successful with those Cups. Um, so looking back, you can't you can't moan too much about it. You know, so many people have gone through really good careers without being able to win much silverware. So I was fortunate that uh, I was around when we could. You mentioned Ian Wright, suspended for the Cup Winners' Cup final. Is that when you think to yourself, this is my moment, I need to take it? Well, there was, um, I suppose there was an emphasis on me doing my job. Uh, we played a 4-3-3 with Paul Merson one side of me, Kevin Campbell the other. So the, the onus was on me to hold the ball up, which was something I knew extremely well. Um, and again, it, it, it all came off on the night. Um, and uh, to get the goal, the only goal of the game was, you know, a, a real highlight during a... Uh, not so great time for me um, so I was thankful for that uh, I mean it was uh, we were the massive underdogs against a, a brilliant Parma team um, that had got the likes of Zola um, Asprilia who went on to uh, to Newcastle, Thomas Brolin who was an excellent player uh, for Sweden at that time, uh, they had half of Italy's World Cup squad uh, that went over to the USA that summer um, so they, they went in as huge favourites, given that Wrighty was, was suspended and uh, 
John Jensen, Martin Keown was injured. It was a makeshift midfield, really. Uh, but uh, it was down to our back four, back five with Dave Seaman, who pulled off some great saves. You know, they we rode our luck, but once I got that goal, it, it was all about keeping that clean sheet. And uh, those lads at the back uh, knew a bit about that. So uh, it, it saw us home. It's, it sees you home, another incredible success. And for you coming towards the end of your career, what was your thoughts and feelings towards retirement? And had you planned that you wanted to go into the media post-football or were you undecided at the time when retirement was, was calling? Yeah, I mean, retirement is foisted upon you at, at the age of 32. It's it's earlier than I would have liked. I'd have loved to have gone on until 35 in the way that quite a few of my teammates did. You look, you look at Lee... Lee, Nigel, Tony, Baldy, they, they all went on into the mid-30s at least. So you're thinking, well, why me? Why has this injury come about? Uh, but you can't feel sorry for yourself. Um, I had to work uh, to look after a young family. Uh, it, it isn't like it would be now with obviously the money the boys earn, the, the, the pressure of, of that is off them. But um, I had to put my mind to something. Uh, I never planned for a career in the media the way it's turned out, uh, but I'd always fancied having a go at writing, which uh, I started doing for a North London paper and then the Evening Standard. I wrote some columns for that first year and then I started writing for the Daily Telegraph. And all this time I was also on Sky, appearing as an Arsenal guest for the, for the live games and that. So but the two built alongside each other, really. Uh, and, it, and it's funny how things work out. You, you, you think, well, I'm I'm not cut out for a career in the media. I don't see that as something that would suit me. I'm fairly not introverted, but I'm not that kind of outgoing character that you would normally think would uh, prosper on, in, on TV and the like. But um, I've been lucky, you know. It's uh, I've been gainfully employed for a long time now, since 1995. Hope I am for a bit longer. Um, it's been a, it's been a wonderful second career for me, which. I've absolutely loved. Uh, you still get a bit of adrenaline by being on live TV commentating, so that kind of replaces, you know, turning out on a match day as a player to a certain extent, so cannot complain. You, you mentioned the second career. It's definitely been, been, been a memorable one. You've worked alongside Martin Tyler and others for many years, and not just on screen, but also on the FIFA video games. Is that something you ever imagined you'd be involved in? No, not at all. Not at all. That that has been fantastic. I've done that for nine or ten years. You know, absolute privilege to do that. And uh, you gain a whole new audience, uh, 12 year olds who, who know you for, for what you do on, on FIFA rather than your career or even your Sky career. Um, so it, it, that's been brilliant. Yeah, I've, I've loved working with Martin, both uh, recording FIFA and, you know, grounds around the around the world, really. We've, we've done a lot of European games uh, together. And, um, it, it, yeah, it, it is funny how life turns out sometimes. I could never have forecast that. Uh, so uh, somebody has been looking down kindly on me, I think. <laughs> a few quick-fire ones just before I let you go, Alan. Toughest opponent you faced in your career? Well... I don't know how many people would recognise uh, Jürgen Kohler and Guido Buchwald. They were Germany's uh, centre-halves and we played them at Wembley for England in 1990, uh, 91. They'd won the World Cup the year before and Guido Buchwald had marked Diego Maradona at the game. 
Uh, I mean, this was a one-off. I, I didn't play them before or afterwards, thank God. But uh, I didn't get a kick against them. They were they were formidable. But domestically, um, Alan Hansen certainly wasn't a physical player, but he was one that could embarrass you by nicking the ball off you. Those are the worst type of defenders. If if they were kicking you, you didn't mind so much. That meant they couldn't get the ball. But if they were taking it off you, as Hansen was so good at doing, just anticipating and coming in front. One, one, one of the hardest, actually, was Gary Pallister at Manchester United. And he, I think he he's much underrated by the wider public, not by the United fans, I'm sure. But he kind of could match everything I could do. He was tall, he was good in the air, he had long legs. So it was difficult kind of to get one up on him in a way. And I, and I didn't have many good games against Pally. So I never, I never looked forward to playing against him. In terms of your teammates, um, there's so many great teammates that I'm not going to ask you for the best player you've played with because there's so many greats there. What I want to know is the most underrated player or underappreciated player that you played with, not someone that was underappreciated by yourself or the management team, but maybe someone who the, the fans or the wider football and culture maybe didn't recognise as a top player, even though they were. Um, I think... Uh... I think probably in the 88-89 title winning year, Kevin Richardson was that sort of player. He came from Everton where he'd enjoyed a bit of success. He was in and out of the team there under Howard Kendall, but he was a fantastic signing. He actually came from uh, Watford. George got him from there. And um, he was a digger. He was a ball winner. He'd give the ball simple, great tackler. Um, he did the, the ugly things really well. And he knitted things together for us. And I mean, he was colossal on... Uh, that night at Anfield, he, he nicked the ball off Barnsley to, to knock it back to John Lukic for the winning goal, uh, having just suffered from cramp minutes before. Um, he was that kind of player, one that we all valued, um, but didn't get too many pats on the back, apart from us and, and, and the gaffer. So I'd say him. Last question for you. Um, I can't let you go without asking you about the North London derby matches. Just what were they like to play in? They were brilliant. Now, uh, you know, the pace was stepped up. You knew it was a derby as soon as you took to the field with the atmosphere from the two sets of fans. Uh, frenetic again, uh, hardly calmed down uh, and, and great matches to win, obviously. And we had a good record against Spurs during those days. Invariably would beat them. Um, my favourite was at, at uh, White Hart Lane. Uh, in 1988, uh, when we beat them 3-2. I think Gazza got his first goal for Spurs that day when he lost his boot and he, he kicked the hoardings afterwards with his with his stocking foot. Um, Chris Waddle scored for them. Um, I got a goal at the far post, um, header. Uh, but yeah, beating Spurs was, you know, a huge thing. It, it's still massive for the fans. I think for the players, it, it's obviously not quite the same thing because so many foreign boys and it, uh, they don't quite get it as much. But having said that, you know, when you, you go out in front of 60,000 fans, whoever you are, you, you're made well aware that this is something a little bit different from from the norm. Um, and Derby days are brilliant, but they're only brilliant if you win. If you lose, it, it's miserable and you don't want to go out. I bet. I have to say, Alan, thank you so much for joining me. And, and, and again, just to remind everyone listening, Alan's book, Heads Up, is available all good bookstores and on Amazon as well. It's, it's thoroughly recommended by myself. And, and once again, Alan, just thank you so much for your time. 
My pleasure, Callum. Been good to talk to you. So we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song We'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song